Coming up on the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. In the United Kingdom, sugar has been going down since 1961, um, it, uh, up, and th- up through the 90s, and it's been almost flat since the 90s. Um, but obesity was 7% in 1980, 28% in 2019. So it went up fourfold. And diabetes increased from 2.5% in 1995 to 7.5% in 2018. It tripled, Mm. right? But what was going up? Vegetable oils. Hello, and welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I'm Brian Grin, and I'm here to give you actionable tips to get your body back to what it once was 5, 10, even 15 years ago. Each week, I'll give you an in-depth interview with a health expert from around the world to cut through the fluff and get you long-term sustainable results. This week, I interviewed ophthalmologist, nutrition researcher, and author, Dr. Chris Kenobi. He's also the founder and president of two nonprofits, Ancestral Health Foundation and Cure AMD Foundation. We discuss the rise of vegetable oils and its link to autoimmune disease and obesity, along with what has caused the rise of omega-6 linoleic acid, issues with eating chicken and pork, why sugar is not to blame for our health issues, and Dr. Kenobi's major rules to take charge of your health. Really enjoyed my interview with Dr. Kenobi. I know you will too. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show. All right. Welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. My name is Brian Grin and I have Dr. Chris Kenobi on. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate you having me on. It's a pleasure. Yeah. I've been listening to you uh, do the podcast scene a bit here, <laughs> enjoying your interviews. And I was like, I got to get you on. Um, you know, we'll talk all about your book, uh, The Ancestral Diet Revolution. Okay. What sort of sparked you to write that book and get into, you know, seed oils? I know you're an ophthalmologist by trade, right? Right, right. So, yeah, it's a long story, but I'll make it really, really brief, uh, Brian. I, I, I really probably ended up in nutrition research out of uh, my own suffering, which is mostly arthritis. And, um, and I, I uh, began to research that in 2011 when my, when I made some dietary changes sort of towards a, a paleo diet and that dramatically improved my arthritis. And, um, I eventually be, uh, came across Weston A. Price's research in 2013 and read his book, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, which was absolutely life-changing for me probably changed the entire course of my life really Mm. um and then i hypothesized that year i hypothesized that processed foods might be driving age-related macro degeneration amd the leading cause of irreversible vision loss and blindness in people over the age of 50 worldwide and so i i researched that for about a year and a half um, and by February of 2015, I was so convinced that that hypothesis held water that I left practice and began to pursue that full time. And hmm. uh, so, so, and that we researched that data regarding that in 25 nations, and that data completely supported the hypothesis. And we published a paper, then I, I published a book on macular degeneration and and started a nonprofit foundation, Cure AMD Foundation. And then but by 2017, 18, 19, Brian, I just was so convinced that seed oils, vegetable oils, 
the highly polyunsaturated vegetable oils, I probably should say, are are such major drivers of obesity and chronic disease like heart disease, strokes, cancer, diabetes, metabolic syndrome that I began to pursue that. And uh, I really presented on that for the first time uh, in, in terms of, you know, regarding the, the kind of this broad scope of chronic disease and diet, uh, especially, you know, vegetable oils that I went public with that in 2019 at the Ancestral Health Symposium, which was held at the University of, University of California, San Diego. And this has kind of, you know, led my life uh, in that path ever since, um, because it's it's really been life changing for, you know, we think lots of people with, you know, we, we think we've reached a few million people with this message. And so in about 2020, I started working on this book, this latest book, The Ancestral Diet Revolution. And uh, yeah, it's been a very long process, but finally now it's it's out and available uh, it's online and uh, at online bookstores, that is. And and uh, so we're very proud of it. So it's that book, by the way, is, you know, myself and a co-author, Suzanne Alexander, who's also put a couple of years of her life into this into this research and this this book how'd you connect with suzanne um so she reached out to me she uh she's a a, a, a teacher by trade but she's got really about 40 years of nutrition research experience um herself and i don't mean in the lab research i mean um more academic type research mm. and um and so she's she's a very smart individual, and um, she and I collaborated on this book over the last couple of years. And uh, yeah, so, so I, I'm in Colorado; she's in New York. So um, a lot of that was done, you know, kind of long distance. But yeah, but it's, so it came together well. We we believe. And so you were uh, you had an ophthalmologist ophthalmology practice. It, and, yeah, so yeah. I practiced ophthalmology from 1991 um, until 2015, so about 24 years in ophthalmology. And um, so, yeah, I left practice in 20 in February of 2015. It's been more than eight years now um, to pursue this, and 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 we recently started a second nonprofit foundation, Ancestral Health Foundation. And it's through these foundations, Brian, that um, we hope to do uh, uh, anthropologic studies on ancestrally living populations around the world. Of kind of getting what, where we should be talking about at the end, maybe. But but th that's our ultimate goal: is to do research that will and and publish paper. So um, because that's what I believe will change allopathic medicine forever. Because allopathic medicine as you probably know, let's just go back to this. They just don't recognize that diet has hardly anything to do with obesity and chronic disease for the most part, except that they'll, you know, they do, they do admit that it's processed foods causing a lot of the problem, but, but for the most part, the, uh, you know, the allopathic conventional medicine does not recognize that, that, uh, it is diet driving obesity and chronic disease and that, um, 
and, and there's an, there's a complete ignorance about this. I wasn't taught anything about nutrition in medical school. And for 21 years after I graduated from medical school from 1990, when I graduated, which was here at the university of Colorado school of medicine, um, until 2011, I absolutely had no clue at all that, that, you know, diet was driving any of this chronic disease, really maybe other than overweight to some, uh, to some degree, you know, but I, I didn't, I hadn't had no understanding of it whatsoever. So this has all been done, you know, um, based on my own research, um, um, you know, mostly, uh, you know, through books and papers and, and, uh, has it, do you think that trainings for health professionals, has it changed since the nineties or is it, is it? Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> no, I don't think if, if it has very little. So, I, you know, I, as I probably wrote in um, maybe one or both of my last two books, um, I don't think I got even five minutes of nutrition education in four years of medical school. And if and what I did get would have been wrong. So the, the, if, if there was any, it probably would have been, you know, saturated fat causes um, heart disease. Saturated fat raises cholesterol and cholesterol causes heart disease and and uh, it would have been as you know as simple as that. And um, so I, you know, I bought that that story like almost all the rest of you know uh, allopathically trained physicians. And um, so I, I didn't understand any of that, and uh, that that was wrong until at least two thousand seven. And regarding vegetable oils, uh, you went sort of started researching rest vegetable oils when you were looking into processed foods and realizing that they were pretty much in every processed food you could imagine. Is that sort of how that came about? Yeah, I would say that, you know, the, I was convinced that vegetable oils were a problem from Weston A. Price's research, which I, which I, uh, I read, as I've mentioned, I read his book in 2013 and, and Price um, evaluated people on five continents, 14 nations, hundreds of tribes and villages and thousands upon thousands of people. Uh, and, and he, uh, just for those who've never heard this story, he, he found that those people who were westernizing their diets, uh, and essentially replacing their native traditional foods with our westernized foods, which he, you know, he stated were refined flours, refined sugars, vegetable fats, he called them, which is vegetable oils, um, canned goods, sweets, confectionery, and the like, those people developed degenerative diseases. It started with dental decay, and they developed arthritis and cancer and so on. And so I was convinced in 2013 that vegetable oils were a part of the problem. But in Price's day, which is the 1930s, especially outside of the United States and United Kingdom and some of Europe, Vegetable oils were extremely low consumption, right? So they, so it wasn't a big deal to price at that time because it wasn't, um, it, you know, they, they, the, the consumption was so low um, overall, but he knew that they were nutrient deficient and part of the problem. That's primarily what Price knew at the time. That's all that was possible for him to know. He's an extraordinarily brilliant individual and accomplished more in a lifetime than I can imagine. But but um, but anyway, so but when I when we researched vegetable oils and macular degeneration, you know, what we found was that every single nation that had increasing vegetable oils had increasing age-related macular degeneration. 
And those countries in the South Pacific that had almost no vegetable oil had almost no macro degeneration, extraordinarily rare, like one in 500 people over the age of 60, whereas it's one in three people over the age of um, 75 in the U.S. and one of 11 people over the age of 52 today is. Yeah. Uh, and so and, and and what we see, Brian, is, you know, if I just go back to the history really quickly. So the world had almost no vegetable oils through all of history. You look back millennia, all there was was tiny, tiny amounts of olive oil, coconut oil um, and sesame oil for the most part. Trivial amounts of couple others but for, for the most part through most of history that's that's what it was and so the those are actually um of the health some of the healthier oils and and uh the first vegetable oil cottonseed oil was introduced in the united states right after the the ending of the american civil war so 1865 so we got we got cottonseed oil in the in the diet in about 1866 and um be, because manufacturers had determined that they, you know, what was once uh, machine oil and lamp oil and then fertilizer um, and then cattle feed, they realized they could feed, feed cattle and not kill them. So they tried to sell it to people, but people didn't want to buy cottonseed oil because <laughs> they, they associated it with machine oil and lamp oil, right, rightfully so, which we still should. And uh, so manufacturers couldn't really just sell cottonseed oil. They tried to you know, just containers of cottonseed oil. And, and for the most part, Americans weren't, they weren't interested in that. They, they, I think, sure, they thought it was ridiculous. And so the manufacturers then began to uh, adulterate various things. Well, they started with adulterating butter, essentially, which then they called margarine. And then they, had, then they ad adulterated olive oil beginning in the 1870s. And by 1880, um, the French made complaint because they were getting what was supposed to be olive oil from the United States. And it was instead, they knew it was adulterated with cottonseed oil. Um, they could tell just by the taste. Um, and anyway, so, but we had very, very low consumption of these oils um, through 1909, about one to two grams per day from 1866 to 1908. And then in 1909, soybean oil entered and all of a sudden in 1909, we're already at like nine grams of total vegetable oil per day. And then what happened is then manufacturers, they knew this was a big money making opportunity. So they then we got so so that, you know, we had at that point cottonseed oil and soybean oil. Then we got corn, canola, eventually cottonseed or well, we had cottonseed, um, rapeseed, grapeseed, sunflower, safflower, rice bran, sesame and peanut oils. These all entered the food supply. And so let me just give you a couple more numbers. So by 1961, Americans were consuming an average of 19 and a half grams of vegetable oil per day. And by 2010, we're at 80 grams per day. All right. So in, in let me just you know throw this statistic out. So if you think about it, in 1865, we had absolutely zero vegetable oil consumption. If you would have used the term vegetable oil to any American in 1865, they would have looked at you puzzled because they... Nobody had ever heard that term and it still shouldn't be used because they don't come from vegetables. But anyway, so we're absolutely zero in, in, in 1908, we would have been about one to two grams a day. And then um, again, by 
2010 were 80 grams a day. 80 grams of oil is 720 calories. That's 32% of U.S. caloric intake. Almost a third of our calories are coming from vegetable oil today. Now, if that doesn't account for the losses, so at the worst, you know, the lowest consumption is about 24%. So uh, around a fourth to a third of our uh, typical American diets are made up of vegetable oils, which didn't exist up through the American Civil War, essentially worldwide. And what we've seen with that is all these diseases like coronary heart disease, cancers, um, type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, Alzheimer's disease, dementia, age-related macular degeneration, all the autoimmune diseases, they've all exploded in prevalence, in incidence and prevalence since that time. So, so you know, very quickly. So, for example, uh, coronary heart disease was just virtually unknown in the 19th century. Between 1800 and 1900, there's eight papers on coronary heart disease for the entire century worldwide. And two of those on thrombotic coronary heart disease, which is the equivalent of myocardial infarction heart attack, right? That's how rare it was. Mm. In fact, the first known heart attack was not, you know, documented in the United States was 1912. James Herrick, a physician, published a paper um, that, you know, on a documented heart attack and um, with autopsy evidence. And it wasn't even taken seriously for about a decade because nobody, you know, nobody was aware of heart disease, of coronary heart disease, all heart disease at that time. There was heart disease, but it was all valvular, which is, you know, infectious that comes from syphilis, endocarditis, and um, uh, uh, I just went blank on the third one. But but in, anyway, all infectious type disease. Um, so and, and then, you know, so coronary heart disease just exploded. And it's been a similar scenario with cancer. Yeah, I mean, I've read some of the articles and I looked I've gone through your book. And I mean, there's so much backing this, it's hard to argue with it. <laughs> yeah. uh, what was the reason that seed oils or vegetable oils, which can probably be used inter interchangeably, um, what was the reason they, they were brought into the market? Was to preserve foods? Um, you know, how come they got involved in industrial manufacturing and processing? Uh, one reason, profit. Absolutely. One reason it was profit. The, the goal of manufacturers was to make money. And, 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 you know, with vegetable oils, it wasn't because they thought they were healthy or I don't think they knew that they were dangerous at that time uh, at all. Um, but the, the, but the goal was always profit. And so the, the goal was to outsell butter and lard and even beef tallow. And because throughout all of history, everywhere you look, um, people cooked with animal fats throughout all of history, except essentially where they had olive trees. And olive trees covered a very small segment of the geography of the entire world. Um, you know, for example, it was mo they were mostly in a few places in, in Europe and in California, up through the mid 19th century. That's the only places that had them. And, and of course, that's where they primarily are today. Um, but so, but e even throughout all of history, olive oil has had a very, very, very low uh, consumption. And in fact, it's only, even today, olive oil only counts for one or one and a half percent of the total global consumption of oils. All the rest are, are vegetable oils. And, 
So again, so then this is what happened. It, the, the, the manufacturers, they succeeded in their goal. Their goal was to replace butter, lard, and beef tallow. And that's exactly what they did. So in the, in the year 1900, when coronary heart disease was unknown um, by virtually almost every physician in the world, um, when Alzheimer's had never been diagnosed, when there was never had been a case of macular degeneration known in the United States, for example, when obesity was 1.2%, when type 2 diabetes was an extraordinary rarity, uh, animal fats uh, accounted for 99% of the added fats in the diet, animal fats, lard, butter, and beef tallow. By 2005, 86% of the added fats in the diet came from vegetable oils. And with that, of course, we've had this explosion of all of this, of obesity and chronic disease. And that's what's still happening is we still have increasing vegetable oil consumption um, throughout almost the entire world. And it continues to replace and supplant the animal fats. And, and with that, again, all of these diseases continue to, to just explode. And the thing about it is, I mean, I know it's in pretty much every processed food, but you also can find it in health foods as, as well. Yes. I mean, you yes. can go to like, you know, Whole Foods, right? Go down, go into, the, you know, where they have the pre-made, you know, uh, buffet or whatever you want to call it. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, and they, they state the ingredients and, and it's, you'd be hard pressed not to find an industrial seed oil in there. Yes, if you even go to um, you know to Whole Foods and, and even and as you mentioned, like the you know for those Whole Food uh, grocery stores that have ready prepared food that you can just mm-hmm. prepare a plate of food, they do have all the ingredients listed for every single one of them, and almost every single one that I've seen has canola oil, and canola oil is about twenty percent omega six linoleic acid. Um, soybean oil is about 54 to 56% omega-6 linoleic acid, LA. Um, and safflower oil is about 78%. So, but it, so that's kind of the gamut. Um, all these vegetable oils, they have the omega-6 runs from about 20% to 78%. But if you contrast that to um, ancestrally raised animals, be, you know, beef, uh, chicken, and pork, all of those will have an omega-6 linoleic acid of about two to two and a half percent. And this is all proven. And so this is what, you know, we should be consuming in our, in our diets, less than 2% omega-6, omega-6 linoleic acid. And the reason I know this, Brian, is because I've examined um, multiple hunter gatherer diets. Um, And in other words, the populations on the planet that that still have absolutely no processed foods and are, of course are incredibly healthy have no coronary heart disease no diabetes no obesity um, almost no cancer and what are their what is their omega six consumption it's all under two percent every single one of them um, their total PUFA is usually under which is omega six and omega three is usually under two percent and I can give you some examples but. Contrast that to where Western diets put us today and the uh, omega-6 linoleic acid consumption ranges from about 7 to 12%. Now, 
Now we modeled in our research, and this is this paper has been submitted for publication, it's pending publication, but we modeled American diets in 1865 before there was any vegetable oils at all. And all, of course, all ancestrally raised animals, um, and uh, which which does make a significant difference. And the omega-6 consumption was around 1.1% of the diet. It was about 2.2 to 2.6 grams of omega-6 LA per day. Um, that increased to about 4.84 grams by 1909 when we had cottonseed oil and, and soybean oil, which is about 2.28%, I think, of, uh, of the diet. By 1999, um, it was 19 grams of omega-6 LA per day, which is around 7% of the diet. And by 2008, we're at uh, 29 grams of omega-6 LA per person per day, which is 11.8% of the diet. This is the recipe for disaster because that omega-6 accumulates in our bodies, accumulates in our in our body fat, in our cells, and in our cell membranes. And this sets up a pro-oxidative, pro-inflammatory, toxic, and nutrient-deficient environment, but, you know, biological milieu. And, uh, and, and th again, this is the recipe for disaster. And everywhere you look, as the vegetable oils go up, you see the body, you'll see the omega-6 LA in the body fat go up. And with that, an explosion of, of obesity and diabetes and metabolic syndrome and cancer. Now it's what does it make a difference whether it's heated or not? You know, because absolutely, okay, yeah, yeah, I think so. But it either so the heated is the worst, and people, everybody knows that that fast food is dangerous. Everybody just inherently knows this, but they don't seem to know why, other than they think it's sugar. For the most part, it's not sugar because mm -hmm. if you if you um, eat fast food every day and you don't drink Coca Cola. Or Pepsi, whatever it is that they, you know, that they, you know, those sugary drinks, this sugar sweetened beverages that they serve at these fast food places, you're still going to have the same problems. And the reason why is because they're all cooking in vegetable oil. They're cooking almost exclusively in canola oil and soybean oil. They're never cooking in lard, butter, or beef tallow, right? They once did. McDonald's used to cook in beef tallow. Until the Center yeah. for Science and Public Interest back in the 1980s said, you know, you're killing people with that saturated, you know, all the saturated fat, that animal fat, you're cooking those French fries in. And of course, uh, you know, so then they, so then they, you know, they buckled and they started cooking in, I, I think they cook in canola oil primarily, but I'm not dead sure about that, but they cook in vegetable oil. Yeah. And I was reading on, um, there's a company called Zero Acre. I'm sure you're familiar with them. Um, they make a, they make an oil that's you know very low in LA that you can cook in in high heat. Um, and there were some stats they were showing, but how inefficient it is to make these oils. Like for five tablespoons, five tablespoons of grapeseed oil, it requires six hundred and twenty-five grapes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah, you know, five tablespoons of corn oil requires ninety-eight ears of corn. So you know. Right just right. seems not sustainable, although it's happening, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it absolutely makes no sense at all that we should really ever be consuming vegetable oil. And I, I tell people, Brian, that if, 
they, they should, if they think vegetable oils are healthy, they might ought to first to just take a look at how they're manufactured. And there's a, there's a good video mm-hmm. on YouTube. Um, you might've seen it. I think it's called canola oil, how it's made. Um, you take a walk, you know, take, 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 observe that. And it's just, it's just a few minutes and um, it'll be shocking to most people to, <laughs> to actually see what the oils look like because they're, you know, they're crushed, heated, pressed, and um, they go through up to about four or five heatings during the process. And then they're, the, the oils are chemically alkalinized, chemically bleached and chemically deodorized before they're prepared to go in the bottle. I made that sound really simple, but if you look at the, these are major factories. You can, if you look at these, these factories that produce the oils, they look a lot like a petroleum refinery, but these are vegetable oil refineries. And if you, if you Google, just Google images um, of quote, vegetable oil refineries, end quote, you'll start seeing what they look like. And, um, and if you watch the process, you'll see, you know, what it takes to make them. I think most people, if they watch that, they'll think, I cannot believe I'm eating this stuff, you know, that, uh, cause it looks like it should be machine oil and lamp oil. And that's what it should be. Now, these Crazy. are chronic metabolic biological poisons is what vegetable oils are. Um, I've been saying this, you know, for, for four years now, and I can get into the reasons why, if you want to. Well, uh, linoleic acid is, for one thing, right, it's unstable. It oxidizes very easily. So when it's heated, that's like at it, when it's at its worst. And you mentioned canola, peanut, rice bran, cottonseed. The thing is, you can't really taste. You you can't tell that these are in your products. So you either got to read the label, or a lot of times, you know, you go to restaurants and you know most people don't ask what what they're cooking their food in, but it's it's most it's ninety nine percent of the time it's it's these oils. So it's almost like a silent killer. Yeah, absolutely is a silent killer. And that's, you know, the, the fact is, is vegetable oils, as I mentioned, are chronic metabolic poisons. They're not acute poisons for the, for the most part. They, you know, that, uh, you know, but I would submit to you that if, if in 1865, we had no oils and in 1866, we had 80 grams a day, like we do today, um, there would have been shocking evidence literally almost you know within weeks or months or within the first couple of years they would have seen just an extraordinary explosion of of overweight and chronic disease and it would have been well known but because this you know the consumption ramped up so slowly you know like i mentioned zero grams in 1865 nine grams in 1909 19 and a half grams in 1961 80 grams in 2010 this allowed all of this chronic disease to just insidiously increase, right? And so therefore, then it's th- th- this was the perfect way to introduce a poison into the, in, into the food supply, slow, and then tell people it's healthy. And that's exactly what they did. They've been telling pe- people it's healthy. In fact, they coined the term, as best I can tell, vegetable oils in the early 20th century. And the reason they did Sounds healthy. It does. <laughs> right. And none of that, not one of these oils comes from a vegetable. There isn't right. such a thing. They come from, you know, the ones that are really dangerous that we talked about. See, see, they come from seeds mostly and beans, right? So most of them are seeds and then soybeans, right? And Crisco, were they the first in the early 90s to, to, to sell this for human consumption, right? 
that was so Crisco represents the, the very first uh, partially hydrogenated fat, which, which gives us, trans, you know, artificially produced or industrial, industrially produced trans fats, which are completely different than the natural trans fats of animal fat. But yeah, so so Crisco was introduced in 1911 by Procter and Gamble. Procter and Gamble were so they were soap and um, and uh, candle makers, and their mm-hmm. you know their candle making business was drying up because of electricity at the time. And so they literally you know looked at their their candles and they said you know this kind of looks like lard, um, and they had they they partnered with. Um, a, uh, a German scientist, um, E.C. Kaiser, if I remember right, and uh, in 1907, and they and they and that's how they they first manufactured Crisco, which is they took cottonseed oil and bubbled hydrogen gas through it while, while boiling it in the presence of a nickel catalyst, uh, and this is how you produce this partially hydrogenated oil. Which again, they 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 just made something that looked kind of like lard. And that was their goal was to, with that product, was to outsell lard. And whereas margarine was, you know, produced more, I think it began, they first began to produce in the 1870s. And that was, again, to replace butter. And what they were doing is they were taking cottonseed oil um, and mixing it with butter and selling it as margarine. Now, in the in your book, um, you have a lot of studies. A lot of, you know, you cite a lot of studies. Was there one that sort of sticks out, you know, because, you know, obviously studies have their different variables and, and their pros and cons, but was there one that sort of stuck out to you? Well, I think the, uh, the animal studies are, are, um, you know, where they put animals on, um, uh, you know, various omega-6 containing diets. Those are particularly striking, um, so I could mention a couple of those, or at least one of those, if you want me to. And I was just reading, actually, looking at a post. Uh, looks like in 2021. What was the most recent one done? This one looks like it was done on acute anterior uveitis, a severe eye inflammation. Is it, was this something that have you seen this one? I could. Um, you mean that is related to seed oils? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I'm not aware of that. Okay, but yeah. It, but but uveitis is. Um, an autoimmune disorder and all of the autoimmune disorders have exploded again since the, since the 19th century. And we've seen an extraordinary increase. Uh, I can give you those numbers uh, uh, in autoimmune disorders. So uh, everything from like lupus, multiple sclerosis, uh, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis. Um, There's over a hundred of these autoimmune disorders today, Um, but they were, rare in the 19th century and just since you know between 1985 and 2015 we've seen just that the data proves that the autoimmune disorders have increased on an average of in terms of incidence a hundred percent every five to six years between 1985 and 2015 hundred percent increase every five to six years why well again the one thing and this is globally and the one thing going up is vegetable oils. And the, the reason this is true is because vegetable oils create um, a, the, a, bi- a biological milieu in the intestine that is ripe for um, leaky gut, increased intestinal permeability. Um, this is, I think, the, one of the primary 
causes of autoimmunity. With you cannot have autoimmunity, I don't believe, without having leaky gut. Um, it's a prerequisite, and and the best way to set that up is through processed foods and vegetable oils is, you know, is to create that situation. But if we go back to, I'll mention Brian, the, uh, go back to one of these studies. I happen to have this um, in front of me. So I'm looking at this, this data on this, uh, sure. uh, on this, uh, the diets of, uh, and, and a study of uh, soybean oil um, versus um, sugar in animals. So, so I have one here where uh, these researchers, um, they, they, they compared uh, rodent chow, which is 1.2% omega-6 linoleic acid, LA, right? This was, and this diet was 4% sugar. These, these rodents, they, uh, they grew up to be normal size, the equivalent of, if we call that the equivalent of a 170-pound man. And then they've had a second, uh, and there's more groups than what I'm going to mention here, but I'll just mention three of them. They had a second group that was 10%. Omega six LA, which was nineteen percent soybean oil, which is typical, absolutely typical of Americans. This is exactly what Americans are doing: around twenty percent uh, vegetable oil in their diet. Right? We talked about it, um, uh, or twenty four percent even. Right? But anyway, the second. I'm sorry. So the second one was ten percent omega six LA, which is lower than Americans as of two thousand eight. But it was also this diet was twenty five point nine percent fructose. So that's huge amount of sugar, right? And these animals um, gained up to they they averaged the human equivalent of 261 pounds. So they 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 get they weighed about 90 pounds more in terms of human equivalent um, as compared to the chow group, right? Um, and this is in over 32 weeks, eight months basically, right? Okay. Third group was 10%. Omega-6 LA, which is 19% soybean oil again, but no sugar at all. And that group had the worst outcome. Hmm. They, they, they had the human, human equivalent of 277 pounds. So they outweighed the group that was the high, uh, the, the seed oil and the high sugar. They outweighed them by 16 pounds and they had by far the worst non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, NAFLD most insulin resistance, the most diabetes, the most um, hepatocyte ballooning. Um, everything about them was the, the worst. So actually that there was protection from the sugar. Now I'm not advising based on this, that people consume more sugar. Sugar is part of the problem because it's a nutrient deficient food, but it's not toxic except in extraordinarily high doses, which is what they use in a lot of these animal studies like this one. That's yeah. a very, very high dose of, of nobody's getting 26% of their diet as, as fructose because fructose is half of sugar. Sucrose right. or table sugar is made up of glucose and fructose, 50-50 mix, right? And, um, and, and high fructose corn syrup is about 55% fructose and 45% glucose. But nobody's consuming 26% of their diet as fructose uh, naturally. That would be the equivalent of um, you know, 52% of your diet is sugar. It doesn't happen anywhere. Americans consume more sugar per capita than any, any, any nation in the world. And our consumption is around 20%, 21% of our diet as of 2010. Right. So yeah. I, 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 close to I don't know if you're familiar. I'm sorry. I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, Dr. Ray Pete. Uh, yeah. 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 So I've had some of his sort of disciples on the show and uh georgie dinkoff uh has come mm -hmm. on he's actually coming back on mm -hmm. yeah i mean 
you know, they talk about how sugar is not to be blamed really. <laughs> and, and this is, this yeah. is sort of proof that that study showing that, you know, it was more so the linoleic acid and, and, and the oils, um, that you're using to cook in or, you know, that are in the foods. Um, it's interesting. So go ahead. Yeah, the, the, the sugar consumption, just, just while we're on this subject, the yeah. sugar consumption in the U S Brian, we have this data, we've published this data and Stefan Guillenet also published the same data. And our, our data is virtually identical because they come from the same data sets um, going all the way. We're, we're the only ones, those two of us are the only ones that I know of that have published data on sugar consumption going clear back. Um, uh, Guillenet and his colleague, they published uh, sugar consumption in the U.S. clear back to 1822. We found it back to 1840. But in 1890, um, sugar consumption in the U.S. was 10.8% of calories already in 1890. And this is when obesity was 1.2% and yeah. diabetes was 2.8 per 100,000. It was 0.0028% of the population. Extraordinarily rare, right? Um, and in, um, in, in 1907, Sugar consumption was 15.8% of the diet. All right. The American, or I'm sorry, the World Health Organization today tells us we should not consume more than 10% of our calories as sugar. And yet we exceeded that by half, you know, but you know, in, in, in 1907, back when, you know, back when obesity was around 1%, diabetes was practically unknown. Um, metabolic syndrome had never been diagnosed. There had never been a case of Alzheimer's disease ever. The first one was diagnosed in 1908. There'd never been a heart attack in the U.S. that we, you know, that documented because uh, that came in 1912. And, and sugar consumption was pretty high back then. Sugar consumption was 15.8% of the diet. And, you know, by, by 1935, um, sugar consumption was 440 calories per day, 22% of caloric consumption. What was obesity then? Around three or four percent. We don't have exact numbers, so that's interpolated data. Um, but you know, because we know that obesity was about one point two percent in the nineteenth century, and the next data we have was thirteen percent obesity in nineteen sixty. So, so, uh, but but sugar consumption nineteen thirty five was twenty two percent of the diet, four hundred and forty calories. Um, where was it in two thousand sixteen? Sugar consumption. 24% of the diet, 526 calories in 2016. So between 1935 and 2016 and 2016, sugar consumption went up 84 calories and 1.5% of the diet as an absolute number. Not right? much, not much. We've had oh no, yeah, it's virtually flat. I mean, it's almost flat in terms of the you know, it's a little bit increase in calories, 84 calories. That's, I think, you know, roughly five teaspoons of sugar. Um, so it's very little change between 1935. And nobody will disagree that we've had an explosion of obesity and chronic disease, of heart disease, cancer, you know, uh, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, Alzheimer's, dementia, you know, age-related macro degeneration. All of this has exploded since then, it's not the sugar. It cannot possibly be the evidence everywhere I look. Um, you know, it shows the same thing. We, you know, that. So we, you know, we've shown that, for example, um, and we'll publish all of this data in coming months and years. That 
for example, in Australia, sugar consumption and carbohydrate consumption has been going down since 1961. But obesity increased, I think, threefold. Um, diabetes, uh, you know, an explosion. I'm trying to remember what the number, I can't remember exactly what that number was. Um, I might have it here. Uh, let's see, I think I do, Brian. So I just won't throw, throw this out. So, um, okay. So, uh, obesity increased from 9% in 1980 to 31.3% in 2018. This is Australia, Okay. but the sugar consumption was declining. And so was the carbohydrate consumption, but what was going up vegetable oils and the United Kingdom uh, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't have the numbers on the diabetes. In the United Kingdom, sugar has been going down since 1961, um, it, uh, up, and th- up through the 90s, and it's been almost flat since the 90s. Um, but obesity was 7% in 1980, 28% in 2019. So it went up fourfold. And diabetes increased from 2.5% in 1995 to seven and a half percent in 2018 it tripled mm. right but what was going up vegetable oils now it's and it's a very similar story i'll give you a, 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 some very interesting numbers in japan if you want me to it's the same story right you know uh, it's the same story and in the united states we've have sugar going down at somewhere at least since 2004 and probably since 1999 so minor discrepancies in data sets there but sugar has been going down since either 1999 or 2004. Carbohydrates have been going down in the U.S. since 1997. Total calories have been going down since 2002. And yet this is when we've had the worst explosion of obesity and diabetes and metabolic syndrome in, is in the last 20 years. And autoimmune diseases is in the last 20 years, right? Um, but what's going up? And it's still the vegetable oils. They continue to replace the, you know, the animal fats. So, yeah, I mean, l- let's talk about some steps people could take to, sure. uh, you know, because obviously there's a lot of data there and um, definitely I would check out your book for sure uh, called The Ancestral Diet Revolution, How Vegetable Oils and Processed Foods Destroy Our Health and How to Recover. Um, and so let's talk about some steps. And I like how you did in the back of the book, which I saw um, ways that we can sort of change our health destiny. And obviously the first one is to avoid all high poof of vegetable oils, you know, soybean, corn, canola, cottonseed, rapeseed, grapeseed, sunflower, you you know, you can do, you can make a song out of it if you want. Um, and so to replace those, um, best animal are animal fats, correct? You got lard, ghee, things like that. Um, butter, grass fed butter, for things at high heat, um, those are great, right? I, I think mm-hmm. butter, you got to be a little bit careful at high heat, if I'm if I'm not, if that's correct. But I know ghee, beef, tallow, uh, suet, uh, lard even, cooking in that. And nowadays, you can find those. Um, but a big one, I think, too, is just not not going out to eat a lot. <laughs> I And it's yeah. interesting thing, when, when COVID hit and everything closed down, and I saw this with actually a few of like my friends that mm-hmm. probably went out to dinner more than they probably should. They lost weight. You know, they really? looked they looked better just from cooking for themselves at home. Because yeah. um, I don't think I don't know. At least from my people, the friends that I'm uh, around, like I don't think people go out necessarily and 
buy the, buy these oils. I mean, maybe a lot of people do, and maybe certain um, spheres of the globe. But um, cooking for yourself is such a big one. I think. I think that's like that. that that'll, that'll go such a long way. Absolutely, and I, I just I just have to you know maybe reiterate what you're saying that my experience has been that there's been a lot of people who mistakenly believe that because they're not using vegetable oils, they're not pouring vegetable oils into their own food, that they're not getting any. Mm. And nothing could be further from the truth because if you're consuming processed foods at all, anything prepackaged, ready to eat, or all these bars, all these bars. Yeah. All restaurant foods, all, um, all fast foods, they're all made with vegetable oil. Almost, you know, very, very few restaurants are cooking exclusively with butter, for example. So, but yeah, and I would just recommend in terms of, you know, practicality, um, you know, if we get to the sort of pragmatics of, of this is I would recommend cooking everything in butter um, as much as possible. I think that's the easiest and safest thing to do. And if you need a lot of oil for something, Coconut oil is a is a really good choice because it's two percent omega six LA. And what about avocado oil? Yeah, the problem. So avocado oil is about fourteen percent omega six LA. So it's not nearly as safe right off the bat to cook with, um, at, you know, as uh, coconut oil or palm kernel oil, which are both two percent LA. And it's, that's where butter would be. It's one and a half to two and a half percent omega six LA. And, um, so, okay. So it's uh, not quite, it's yeah. Yeah. And two, two other huge problems with olive oil and avocado oil, same thing as what happened in the 19th century. We have the, we have a worse problem today, probably that these are the oils that are most adulterated with cheap vegetable oils. Right. So 79% of the olive oil in the United States recently was, you know, shown by that, the national American, Olive Oil Association, N-A-O-O-A, I believe that is, um, do not meet criteria for good quality standards of olive oil, meaning they're either adulterated or they're, you know, they're too old and they're oxidized. And, um, you know, they're, these are not good oils. So, so most people that even when they think they're getting olive oil, four out of five bottles on a statistical basis are not going to be even good, decent quality olive oil. Unfortunately, you know, we still have this problem going on today. So there's adulteration is, is a global problem of of these oils. And that's, it's a very similar situation for avocado oil. Those oils are pretty expensive to make. And so, you know, and if you, if you can get a, a big bottle of oil for $14, it's adulterated. I almost guarantee it in general, most of them are going to be adulterated. Yeah, and so you gotta you gotta know where this where it's coming from. So extra virgin olive oil from a good source, you know, you can use that as a dressing, um, and you could cook in it if you know if the source is correct, right? Um, and then, like you mentioned, butter, um, coconut oil is a good one if if you don't want to if you're maybe a vegetarian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Or, or anybody could cook in coconut oil, but I would recommend uh, number one. I think it's for most people, it's easiest to get rid of all of their oils because even coconut oil, which is fine, but 
just everybody should keep in mind that none of the vegetable oils, whether they're good or not, have any vitamins A, D, or K2, um, which you will get in butter, for example. And you will get those in beef tallow. And you get much lesser amounts in pork lard. Um, And I should mention really quickly, Brian, I think that people need to be a little cautious about the kinds of chicken and pork they consume because mm-hmm. if those animals are fed um, corn and soy like they are in CAFOs, concentrated animal feeding operations today, they will, because those are monogastric animals like humans, they will develop very high omega-6 in their body fat up to around 20% omega-6 LA. Whereas if those animals, chicken and pigs are fed um, ancestral diets, which means they get no corn and soy. I mean, these are you know, chicken and pork are, they're both um, omnivores, right? They eat, they eat other animals and they eat plants like humans do. And, uh, but anyway, they can, they can develop very high levels of omega-6 LA in their body fat. So if you're consuming those animals, um, that those meats off the shelf in grocery stores, you're almost always getting a CAFO, you know, CAFO raised, and corn and soy fed animals. So you have to, you have have to find those. Whereas with beef or any ruminants, any ungulates, the, the ruminants that have, that are polygastric, they, one of their, one of their stomachs is a, essentially a biohydrogenation chamber and and you, they can convert high omega six into monounsaturated fat. So in other words, they can take and take omega six LA and convert it into monounsaturated fat and saturated fat. And then they will store that in their body fat and they will have very low LA. So even a corn and soy fed cow will have omega-6 LA that's around two and a half to maybe three and a half percent of the body fat. Whereas a hundred percent grass fed cow will have closer to 2% omega-6 LA. So very little difference. You again, compare that. So even in a CAFO raised you know, cow, uh, cow, you know, beef, right. you're, you may only be getting three, you know, two and a half to three and a half percent omega six LA contrast that to 56% LA in soybean oil, which is the most commonly used high PUFA oil in the world today. It's the second most commonly consumed oil. The number one um, oil in the world worldwide is palm oil, which is, doesn't get very good, you know, has very relatively pretty low consumption in the U S because um, nobody uses it for anything other than some for some processed foods, but but it's you know it's has pretty big consumption in in uh, in Asia, for example. Yeah, your uh, your you know your your point on the the cows versus chicken and pork. Um, actually, when this comes out, I'll I, I'm, I'll have an interview already out with some ranchers, <laughs> ranchers and dairy farmers, and they talked about that in particular. The interesting thing is cows are most of the cows, even if it's uh, conventionally raised, um, like just the health status of that just is so far beyond the conventionally raised chicken and pork. So I guess from that standpoint, if you are going out to eat, you know, I would stick with, if if you eat those things, I I would stick with meat over the chicken or the pork. Because I think people go out to eat and they think they have like, they get a nice piece of chicken on a salad. They think they're eating healthy. It's sort of, you know, and, and yet they're getting these, you know, high amounts of omega sixes. Yeah. So if you do, if you do consume, um, CAFO raised 
chicken, for example, then um, the safest thing to do is to consume the, the cuts of meat that have the lowest fat, which would be like a chicken breast okay. with no skin and no fat, right? If you, you know, if you, but the, even those, the LA, the omega-6 LA is going to be substantially higher, about four times higher than it would be in um, a ancestrally raised chicken. So yeah. again, that would be like, a, you know, chickens that are, um, that are fed, uh, you know, a, a, na- a natural diet. So, you know, chickens, chickens, are, again, they're omnivores, um, uh, you know, people who think chickens are vegans, that's no, they're no more <laughs> vegans than we are. I mean, generally speaking, they're omnivores and they, eat, they, you know, they eat worms and bugs and, and, uh, you know, carry on their, you know, decaying flesh, uh, all kinds of flesh they'll eat. They'll eat, you know, rodents and snakes and all mm-hmm. that if they can get them. And then they they also, but they eat plants too, you know. So they're eating, you know, they'll they'll eat uh, fruit and vegetables and and greens and all that. So um, yeah, that, no. that, that's what that's what a chicken that's what chickens should be eating. Right, and it's t- it's tough to find that. Um, you know, I I go to I use a sort of uh, company called Force of Nature, and um, they have you know quality chicken. Uh, cause my wife likes to eat it up. Uh, but yeah, so I think, uh, you're best off. Yeah. Like you said, either finding leaner cuts of, of, of chicken meat, or just maybe going with steak. If, if you've got to choose between the two and you're going out to dinner, got to, you know, right. so, um, is there anything else like people could do, um, you know, before we close things up here, um, as far as, you know, sort of t- taking their health in their own hands? Okay, so as far as, you know, very quickly, just to sort of recap, um, is to to get your omega-6 down and get it low, get it to an ancestral level, you want to have your omega-6 under 2% of your diet. There's only one way to get there. Number one, eliminate the vegetable oils, the seed oils have to be eliminated. Number two is avoid PAFO-raised chicken and pork. Number three is cut out nuts and seeds, at least for a while, at least for a several years, because that's how long it'll take to get your omega-6 LA in your body fat, in your cells and your cell membranes down to an ancestral level. And then, the, you know, and then the next thing is once you do that, next steps are get rid of processed foods, because then you're eliminating, you know, for the most part, refined sugars and refined flours, right? And so now you've eliminated, so, so that's it. The, those are the huge steps. If you just want to get, you know, the low hanging fruit, if you eliminate vegetable oils, refined flours, and sugars, you're, I think for most people, you're 95% of the way there towards an ancestral diet. So then you can eat anything you want to, um, you know, any kind of food. When people say, well, can I have Chinese food or Mexican food or um, Brazilian food, whatever, that makes no difference what it is, as long as the ingredients are ancestral. And, and, and ancestral ingredients means no vegetable oils. Little, you know, I, I would say, you know, small amounts of sugar and small, very small amounts or, or no refined flours, essentially. That's the, those right there are the big steps. That's the low hanging fruit to easily get to. And I'm not saying this is easy to do. You have to be very vigilant in order to, you know, to, con, to consume an ancestral diet. But that's how you do it. That's how you do it. And when you say nuts and seeds are like, let's say someone likes macadamia nuts. Oh, that okay. That's the one that's low in LA. <laughs> okay. Yes. Okay. Macadamia nuts. What about pistachios? I do like pistachios. No, I don't know the number off the top okay. of my head, 
but they're all, all of the nuts and seeds will be high in LA except macadamia nuts. Macadamia nuts are 2% omega-6 LA. So if you're, if you want to consume nuts, that's the one, um, Got it. Yeah. you know, kick, uh, you know, there could be other issues for people with those. And I wouldn't, I would not recommend nuts be a staple for anyone because they're, they're not really, they should never be considered staples of the diet because they couldn't be, you know, for any population ever in history. Nobody had huge amounts of nuts to eat. Um, you know, I mean, there's been a couple of populations um, that, you know, the Kung San, for example, that consume a fair amount of Mongongo nuts, but it's because they can't get, they're starving and they literally just can't get enough, you know, they can't kill enough animals um, to survive. So they're eating Mongongo nuts um, mm. and they're not, these people are not, it's one of the few hunter gatherer populations that is not doing, you know, they're not doing very well. Their kids have, their kids are starved. They're malnourished and have quashior core, you know, the distended bellies and th things like that. So, but anyway, that's the low hanging fruit. That's what you, that's how people get, you know, get towards an ancestral diet. All right, Chris. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, best place for people to find you. Yes, Brian. Well, thanks for having me on. And yeah. So we have, um, well, as I mentioned, two foundations, Cure AMD Foundation and Ancestral Health Foundation. The latter, our website, will be coming along here shortly. That will be at ancestralhealthfoundation.org. Cure AMD Foundation is at cureamd.org. Um, we have um, Facebook uh, for both of those foundations. We have Twitter for both of those foundations. Uh, Instagram for both. Um, I am on Twitter, but I'm not very active. I'm at, at Chris Kenobi MD. Um, I'm not very active at all. And I'll put, I'll put, <laughs> that's fine. I'm not, I'm not a big Twitter guy, but I'll put uh, links in the show notes for all that. And then as well as your book, The Ancestral Diet Revolution, which was okay. recently, you know, published in paperback and hardcover, I see. Um, right. And uh, yeah, Any, anywhere yeah. out. Yeah, that should be. Good to go. Well, Chris, I appreciate you coming on the show and sharing all this knowledge and hopefully people will take a little bit from it and, and, and implement it into their lives. Sounds great, Brian. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks for listening to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I understand there are millions of other podcasts out there and you've chosen to listen to mine and I appreciate that. Check out the show notes at briangrin.com for everything that was mentioned in this episode. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend or family member that's looking to get their body back to what it once was. Thanks again and have a great day.